Hello and welcome to the September-ish issue. No. That went wrong much faster than they usually go wrong. Is that a record to have sort of stopped <laughs> mid-first sentence? Oh, grand plan to warm up. Welcome to the September edition of The Crit. My name is Ollie Stratford and I'll be continuing to bungle this throughout the podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, India Block. Hello, India. Hello. I love getting to say the September edition and the September issue. It makes me feel like we are Anna Winter and Grace Coddington warring over our big event of the year. Yeah. Doesn't Anna Winter have a very strange lunch? Doesn't she have, like, just steak every single day or something? Is I thought that was... I thought that was just in The Devil Wears Maybe Prada. Maybe I'm thinking of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Maybe they have steak together. Actually, Anna Winter gets a, a surprise shout-out in one of, one of our stories. Ah, well, we'll look forward to that. Now, listener, this is a slightly unorthodox episode of The Crit, and the reason is we have a new issue of Desenio coming out very soon, in early September, in time for the London Design Festival. It's an issue we're super proud of. We think it's a really strong one. So we thought we would do a little bit of a preview and talk you through some of our favourite stories from it. Of course, it's really hard to choose our favourites. They are all our favourite children. We love each and every story equally. Oh, I hate the ones we're not talking about. (laughs) And if our writers are listening and you're not mentioned, it's because I think you're garbage. (laughs) Uh, That's a bit mean, actually, isn't it? You are the devil and I wear the Prada. (laughs) Well, let's press on with the episode because we have a lot of really nice stories to go through. So one of the central stories from this issue and the first one I want to talk about is a piece called The Everywhere Chair, which is a really brilliant essay written by the V&A senior design curator, Brendan Cormier. Uh, It's actually quite an irritating story in some ways, because I think people always associate design with chairs. And uh, my family, for instance, are convinced I edit a um, magazine about chairs and I was like, it's not just about chairs. Design is much more than that. And then think, oh, I have just commissioned a 16-page essay on an old chair. <laughs> so, so that every chipware chair very much uh, plays into um, that perception of Desenio. But it's the story uh, of how a chair from the 1930s became incredibly zeitgeist in the 2010s. Uh, to the extent that just this chair's presence in a venue, be it a cafe, a bar, cinema, whatever you like, any kind of faintly hipsterish venue, that chair serves as kind of almost a shorthand for design. Uh, it signals this is a design venue or this, this place cares about design. I, I mean, whatever that might be. Yeah, I mean, if we have to publish something about chairs, this is a really fabulous piece about chairs that really kind of takes apart a lot of um, kind of industry secrets, as it were. So it's the Tolix Chaise A, um, which I don't know if it's got household name recognition, but if you saw it, you would absolutely definitely recognise what we're talking about instantly. Yeah, I I don't think it does have household recognition. I think until Brendan's piece, for instance... I, I don't think I ever knew it was called the chaise. I would have just called it a Tolix chair. The Tolix part I knew, but the actual name of the chair, I, I don't think that many people know it. Yeah, and I like that um, that Brendan's kind of open about the fact that he sort of had to go and panic learn about all of the chairs when he uh, got appointed to his V&A role. So, <laughs> you know, it's something for the chances of us out there. And again, hard to describe a physical object in a audio medium, but it's a metal chair, it's made out of steel, and it's got these kind of four legs that taper towards the ends and then the back is kind of one big loop it's like very industrial looking very solid it's stackable um if you've ever been to a leon that's the chair they have yeah that is kind of this shorthand for saying like we know about cool design if we have this chair that has almost kind of jumped the shark and it's become so popular 
it's kind of odd that the Chez A has become such a big thing because its history is actually fairly standard. That's not to say it's boring or anything like that, but it has quite an archetypal chair story, if you like. So there's an industrial sheet metal manufacturer named Xavier Pouchard. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. It's the thing, if you work as a writer, you only ever see it. You never hear anyone say it. So uh, apologies to the family if that uh, was an abomination. Um, he founded a company uh, that eventually became called Tolix. That happens in 1908 in Burgundy. And basically that company is based around um, how sheet metal can be protected from rust by dipping it in molten zinc. So Tolix is making galvanised steel furniture for outdoor use. Uh, in the early 1930s, uh, they launched Chez A, which Xavier has designed. And then over the next few decades or so, that design gets a little bit of refinement. It doesn't initially stack, which for an outdoor cafe chair is not great. Uh, but by the time we hit 1956, uh, the Chez A is locked. Uh, the Chez A, as we know and love it, is alive yeah, but the story comes with this uh, twist almost. The, um, I mean, Tolix is still there, it's still running, it's pumping out the Chaise, but they're not this big global operation. It's one factory in Burgundy, um, there's only 65 people that work there, and yet the Chaise is everywhere, and, you know, the numbers don't really stack up. And it turns out that there's loads of manufacturers um, who are producing unofficial versions some might say a copy and Brendan goes off and um, kind of jumping off from Burgundy explores these unofficial warehouses in Shenzhen in China which is this huge manufacturing center in the Pearl River Delta and he is kind of trying to find the answer about how this chair ended up everywhere how this chair is made in its many forms how can you even authenticate this chair? Does it matter if you have an original? Does it matter to the people designing it? There's all these kind of like knotty questions of design that are summed up in this um, simple stacking chaise that has just become such a dominant force in, um, in interiors. Yeah, it's a great piece because it is quite encyclopedic. I mean, like you say, Brendan travelled a lot for this. And I, I guess like you say, what's interesting about the chaise to an extent, is that it isn't unique. This is a story you see happening all the time in design. I mean, we all know knock-off Eames chairs, for instance, and this phenomenon that older designs, very famous, desirable designs, start being produced um, a lot of the time in China and a couple of other places too, much more cheaply. And I think Brendan, of course, he's interested in the intricacies of the chaise in its particular case, but to an extent, it's just a case study to get at some wider issues within design. Like, how is design produced today? How are we consuming it? How is it being manufactured? How is it being distributed? It's one of those things where these original designs are really expensive. And that's one of the arguments given. These companies say, yeah, but we've invested to make this. We should be able to continue to profit off it. And I always think, well, I mean, the people who worked at your company 70 years ago invested. <laughs> <laughs> in it and you've had quite a long time to benefit from this but like you said I think one good reason to buy the official and this is something which Brendan touches on with Tolik Chaise Chaise is quite difficult to manufacture it's got a lot of uh, a lot of bends in that in that chair like there's there's no real way to make it more easily or quickly or efficiently so the people making the cheap chaise they're probably doing it by not paying their workers particularly well uh by maybe cutting some corners on health and safety and things like that whereas if you buy from tolix directly you know the people making it are getting a better deal. So uh, personally, I'm more interested in that side, the sort of labour conditions and how that factors in than I am these ideas around, well, shouldn't these old companies be able to continue to financially benefit from these? Ch I mean, I've simplified it and there are counter arguments, but there you go. I mean, where do you stand on it, India? <sighs> I think it's really interesting and I think <laughs> sorry it was for people who well no one can see but you just you you puffed out your cheeks really nicely I think actually the 
um, there's a nice kind of link and it's this kind of interesting happenstance when this happens every issue that you get pieces that are kind of unintentionally in conversation with each other and I really think that one of our columns um, is going to uh, explore this a bit more this idea of copying and recopying and these kind of conversations that happen like through the ages and um, kind of across mm. continents this is the piece by Tetsu Magai indeed um uh yeah and Tetsu really kind of um wrestles with this idea of like what is a copy what is original I I think it's really interesting that uh one of the moves that Tolix has made to kind of combat this is not to necessarily launch a load of lawsuits but to start stamping their logo on their Tolixes because then you know you can you can it'll be easier to tell it's kind of like it's harder to fake a handbag when they have the um, all the kind of logo and stitching on it. But then, you know, it would probably be quite easy if you're a copyist to start stamping the logo onto their chair. So it's this kind of arms race of um, of copywriting. I think that's I think that's a way around it because it I mean it varies from country to country, but it's notoriously hard to copyright like a physical form. So to copyright a chair or something like that. I mean, that's the laws around that have changed a little bit and differ. Um, but the protection isn't great in most places. But I think the logo is protected. So someone could make uh, the chaise or, or something that looks a hell of a lot like the chaise and they're not necessarily breaking copyright. But I think if they stamp Tollix on it and they're not Tollix, then they are breaking a copyright there. Oh, then they can sue them. Ah, yeah, so that's that's some of the the complexities around this. It, it it gets really messy, and and Brendan deals with it very elegantly. I must say, it's it's a great read. One of my favourite pieces we've we've commissioned in quite a long time, and I I think also just you know we're as guilty of it as anyone when when you work in design you often think a lot about the design process and well how did how did they reach this and all of that but often these things around distribution for instance where is it being manufactured how's it being manufactured who has the rights to this how is this being distributed they end up being a bigger more important story um and and I mean kudos to Brendan he found a really innovative and interesting way of getting at that through Chaise, I think. I've done a report about um, architecture and its burgeoning labour movement. This is the move to kind of unionise studios. It's been gaining ground here in the UK and also over in the US. And um, just today, the New York Times broke the news that the first private uh, architecture practice union in the US has it's happened. It's been approved. Bernheimer Architects um, has unionised and congratulations to them. Yeah, really exciting. It looks like management are totally on board with it, and they want to use this opportunity not only to make sure that you know they keep reasonable hours and reasonable pay, but also that they can um, be in a stronger position to bargain with developers. And yeah, this this story has been kind of my white whale for a couple of years now. And uh, I've just been really touched that, <laughs> yes, I am Moby Dick in this narrative. You're Ahab. <laughs> oh yeah, Ahab. No, I'm, Ahab not, I'm not surely. the whale, I'm the, I'm the grumpy sailor that's yeah, projecting. Yeah, you're, you're mad old Ahab uh, t- sort of crossing oceans in pursuit of your whale. <laughs> But yeah, I've been really touched that a lot of people were very trusting um, enough to go on the record with some really grim experiences that they've had in the industry as early career architects, whether that's in education or in practice. It sounds cheesy, but it's genuinely inspiring to see so many grassroots organisations kind of getting out there, lobbying, organising, educating workers. So mad props to UVW SOAR, Future Architects France, Architectural Workers United, the Architects Lobby. Yeah, it's it's an exciting time. Yeah, and I mean, I'd, I meant to... Uh... blow some smoke up you it's a great piece it's a really interesting study of the unions people involved in that people working to unionize their architecture offices and it's fascinating because 
I think increasingly in 2021, 2022, it does feel a little bit like a tipping point for unions. Obviously, in the UK, where we're based, there's been a lot of talk of industrial action in some of the traditional unions. And unions have been around for a long time, but it feels a little bit of a comeback for uh, workers really getting interested in these ideas of collective power. I mean, you, you see a lot of reports of workers at Amazon, at Apple, at Starbucks, all pushing for fairer and safer working conditions and trying to do that through unionising. But I think in comparison to those fields, the creative industries do seem to lag a little bit behind on industrial action. I'm struggling to think of many unions that work within the sphere. I mean, the exception to that, I suppose, is the actors and writers unions. In Hollywood, you hear quite a lot about how they've gone on strike and now a particular show is paused mid-run and things like that. But in general, you don't see too much of it, certainly within design or anything like that. Now, India against this kind of wider backdrop of increasing interest and perhaps a sense of crisis in a lot of workplaces. Why do you think this is now happening in the design industry? Because you spoke, you spoke to quite a lot of different groups doing similar work within this field, a lot of people who are interested in this. Why do you think there is this sudden focus on it and a, a bit of a greater emphasis? Yeah, so the theme that came up um, again and again, and you know, I was asking this question to people, was that it was sort of a combination. The pandemic obviously put people under a lot of greater stress, um, but also divorced people from their kind of immediate working environments. You know, architects work in offices in front of computers. When they suddenly started doing that work at home, I think a lot of people suddenly realised the kind of insane hours and routines that they were being asked to keep and it almost became the kind of straw that broke the camel's back and at the same time with the death of George Floyd at the hand of the police um, in America and Black Lives Matters protests that happened all around the world I think that showed people the power of direct action of um, raising your voice collectively I think it um, was uh, you know motivation for a lot of architects to start working groups discussing the issues that they saw in practice because um, you know this is an intersectional issue and um, black architects are not well represented in the industry and that's a real problem because if you're designing the built environment um, you can't just have like one group of people designing it for everyone else. You're going to get problems. You're going to get just reinforcing this systematic oppression. But I think once you start pulling at that thread of why are we working these insane hours? Why are there no you know black architects in our office? You you start to like unravel this like web of problems. It's been an it's been an open secret for years, hasn't it? Everyone talks about it. The insane hours, the ludicrous demands. I mean, architecture is not totally dissimilar to something like law in that respect, and it, it's obviously a huge problem in law too. But I guess the argument sometimes given is, well, they earn such huge salaries in law, and that's kind of the the devil's deal you make. Early career architects are not making huge money <laughs> by any means. But some of the demands are, are pretty familiar. Yeah, I mean, you do you do the maths, and once um, unpaid overtime is built in, then your salary is often below a legal minimum wage, and that is wage theft. Unpaid overtime is built into the system. Like this is part of the exploitation that studios um, undercut each other to give kind of low prices to developers and then they know that the way they're going to make up that shortfall is by making their workers work these insane hours and people get into such debt to qualify that they feel like they can't step off this treadmill so I think we've got this kind of wider understanding of everything but also there's this kind of all these different intersecting issues with like unpaid internships there was a big scandal a few years ago about architecture still kind of relying on free work from students or from like people who had just graduated or education was this another open secret that people were being exposed to some really unpleasant harmful attitudes um, even while they were studying and it's like this big nasty soup that's been bubbling away 
And I feel like it's finally boiled over and um, Mm. people kind of finding their voices and speaking to each other about them. Yeah, it's an interesting one and a really great point you discussed quite a bit in the essay. And I think particularly drew this out from the interviews was that part of the struggle is even getting architectural workers to identify as workers, to think of themselves as workers and as people who might be being exploited or something. And it's interesting as to why that is. I mean... I guess we're speculating to an extent, but there's almost this slight, sometimes it can feel within this the creative industry, it's this slight elitism where they don't want to see themselves as workers, where you think of yourself more as this creative figure, so, and particularly in architecture, someone bridging the arts and the sciences. And that's, that's something in general around the knowledge industries, you're earning your wages through mental labour rather than physical labour. But I, I think the idea of a worker is still quite tied up with physical labour. It doesn't necessarily carry across into other spheres where it really ought to, because it can be as pernicious. You know, if you get physically injured in a warehouse, that's obviously awful. But there are different types of harm. If you're having to work such extraordinary hours that all of your personal life suffers and collapses around you, if you're subject to extreme pressure, you can get burnout, you can get mental illness. It's quite difficult to persuade people that they are workers and that they should think of themselves in that way. And that's not a demeaning thing or anything like that. I mean, being a worker of any kind is not demeaning, but I think there can often be this slight elitism or snobbery around it, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. And that's such a good point about the mental health issue, because one word that everyone used unprompted um, when they spoke to me was toxic. When you kind of look at what that really means, it's this idea that these cultures, these systems in education and studio practice are literally poisonous they are hostile to living a healthy life you know we are beginning to understand how bad sleep deprivation um kind of overwork can be for you how hard it is to recover and um that is just as bad as and as crippling as um kind of being physically unsafe in a workplace and um i feel like you know perhaps we didn't have all this language to be able to discuss different kinds of oppressive work conditions but now now we are gaining ground and it's just this question of like stopping it getting too caught up in the culture wars um Eve Livingston wrote a really great mm. piece for Vice this week about how um sort of some of the like cute trendy phrases around uh, the worker struggle, you know, your great resignation or um, quiet quitting. Have you heard of quiet quitting? I saw quiet quitting on Twitter today, uh, actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this kind of idea that you, like, do the bare minimum of your job description, which is just called, like, fulfilling your job role. And But then everyone's kind of, like, getting down in the weeds about, about you know, who's quiet quitting, what's quiet quitting, when actually <laughs> um, it's more about, like, well, what would make you disengage from your work? That's probably, like, mistreatment from bosses and higher-ups. So it's kind of, like, trying to keep people focused. But, yeah, with this news out of New York today... And this kind of increased conversation and these organisations are doing some really important work. I think it's actually like a really exciting and like hopeful time. And the, a union can be an antidote to this poisonous, toxic environment. <laughs> I was about to do an intro to this section, but I think you've just done it. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, one of my favourite pieces from this issue, actually. It's a review by the writer Sophie Tolhurst of A Weird Sensation Feels Good, an exhibition about ASMR hosted at the Design Museum. Still running, so if you wanted to see it, you could get down there if you're based in London or visiting. Um, And it originally originated in Stockholm at Arctes back in 2020. Yeah, so ASMR, um, also known as Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, um, is something that, I mean, I feel like everyone knows what it is, but maybe they don't. Not the the older generations. (laughs) Not weirdos like me who spent ages on YouTube uh, listening to it. Oh, gosh, I love it. It's um, 
this kind of only recently defined um, kind of like physical response that you get to stimuli that are like sounds but also watching something at the same time it feels kind of like um, I would describe it as that feeling when you're lying in a hot bath and then you put your head under water and then like the water rushes into your ears and it makes you do like a full <laughs> body shiver. <laughs> no, it's not like drowning. It's like this weird sort of like mental shiver that runs through you, like a really pleasant someone walking over your grave. All sorts of like things can set it off. So it can be kind of like the sound of like hair being brushed or long yeah. fingernails tapping along like a plastic thing. Crinkling or crackling is quite a good one. Yeah, some there's kind of like some subcultures like mukbang, which is like mouth sounds. People are like really into the sounds of people like eating things. And it's huge online. I mean, I mentioned YouTube, but you know, these top ASMR content creators or ASMR artists, they can earn like thousands hundreds and thousands of dollars i mean you don't know exactly unless people like publishing their amounts which they don't but if you kind of run the numbers through subscribers and views and what youtube pays to its top content creators then i think you know jane asmr who's like number one asmr artist in terms of like ranking we reckon would make like five hundred thousand us dollars a month so it's a huge industry that's the reported figure yeah mm, mm-hmm. i should say because not everyone gets this response that that's something which is interesting about it it's some people get it others don't and it varies a little bit between people you presumably get it india yeah i definitely get it i kind of wonder if it's like you know some people um taste uh coriander or cilantro um and yes. it tastes like soap to them and then it tastes really delicious to other people so I mean it hasn't been discovered yet but I do wonder if there's like some sort of kind of genetic like uh basis for this like some people can see it and some people can't mm, I get it too I get it if uh, someone washes my hair for instance at the hairdresser also from videos, soft speaking, anything like that gives it to me a little bit. So I, I guess one thing that should already be clear is this is a slightly unorthodox design field and something which is maybe slightly unorthodox for a design museum to be showing. But I think you can also get a real sense of why design critics and curators are keen to interrogate this. Because as you said, India, it's an enormous world. It's a world of skilled professionals, people doing this as their work, producing content that is really carefully calibrated to trigger certain responses in people. And if that doesn't meet criteria for design in some ways I wonder what would I I think it's very clear these are highly designed pieces of content that they're putting out but having said that I think we have to give enormous credit to the show's curator uh, James Taylor Foster at Arcdes he's curated both editions of the show uh, for pushing this because certainly to my knowledge it's the first exploration of this scale within design about ASMR And I think James has been really progressive in identifying that sort of, it sounds obvious once you've been told, I do an ASMR exhibition. You think, oh yeah, of course, that makes massive sense for design. Because ASMR isn't necessarily new, it's formally named back in 2010. But when you consider how slow these institutions actually work, like how long it takes to get things through... I think it's amazing that James got this up and running as early as 2020. Yeah, and it's really interesting that how he's managed to translate something that happens mainly in the kind of virtual online world into a offline experience, which I think is something that so many museums really struggle with. And I think he's really struck an excellent balance in terms of things that you can do to kind of create your own ASMR soundscape. There's sort of tactile exhibitions but they also included a lot of ASMR artists in the conversation but at the same time I think it's interesting that Sophie hasn't shied away from the kind of complicated flip side to this which is if you are trying to bring this kind of massive internet world to a design audience kind of decisions have been made rightly or wrongly or necessarily to um, kind of sanitize ASMR. 
ASMR, you know, even within the internet, holds this kind of weird place. People aren't sure what it is. It's often women who are the top creators, which is unusual in any field for women to be the one kind of uh, fronting it and making the money from it. Uh, which has also led to kind of this general sort of perhaps like misplaced view that it's something akin to sex work. Um, I mean, there is like a whole porn ASMR, you know, subgenre as well that Sophie gets into. There's a whole porn version of everything now. Yeah. If you gave me 10 (laughs) minutes, I could probably find a porn version of The Crit. Oh, yes, our OnlyFans. Yeah, there's probably like a whole porn <laughs> w- channel. Won't you join me on my Chazé? <laughs> well, yeah, there's going to be like the Chazé, how many like porn films can you spot it in the background? Yeah, so I mean, that's, but it's one of those arguments that people bring to kind of denigrate the work of women anyway. And it's also this very interesting thing that it's something that's done alone and um, it's almost a sort of like emotional service that these women are providing because it's all about um, creating like a connection you have to sort of feel like relaxed and taken care of to best experience ASMR but also that makes ASMR artists very vulnerable and there's been lots of like really horrendous cases of um, big artists getting stalked virtually which is horrendous in its own right can sometimes spill over to kind of physically endangering you Um, so it's this big messy topic and in some ways I think the design world is not ready to wrestle with that and has kind of like tried to clean it up a little bit before showing it to the public. But, you know, which is interesting in itself because a lot of things that are interesting to look at the design of, you know, like activist movements or other parts of digital culture, design kind of mainstream design struggles with how to present those to a wider audience without defanging it almost. This is a good question, though, and this is why I like Sophie's article so much, because I think this is something that design institutions should be much more conscious of and speaking about a lot more. Design has opened up massively. We all know that, and design institutions are keen to get these new and different forms of practice into the museum and to be talking about it in terms of design. And I get what the benefit to design is of that because you're admitting new and exciting forms of practice. But the question they need to ask themselves is, well, do these disciplines benefit from being looked at in terms of design? Yes, in some ways, but like Sophie digs into with ASMR and which you were talking about there, India, it leaves a lot out. Like design does not necessarily always present these things in the way in which which does full justice to the richness of them and to the complexity of them. Because we all know design framings, right? If you want to talk about something in terms of design, then you start framing it as a form of practice. I mean, I've said practice during this conversation quite a few times. It's one of those words which comes up all the time in design. Or you speak about a creative community or social utility or a form of cultural output And that all happens in weird sensation feels good because it's really trying to make a case. This is design. But Sophie, I think, makes the excellent point of, okay, you can frame it in that way. But in some senses, that's a really awkward fit. Because if you're talking about sort of practice, creative community, social utility, how well does mukbang fit into that? Uh, Like you say, how well does the sort of hyper feminization of some of these performers fit into that. And I think Sophie's basic point is, yeah, but maybe it's just not such an easy thing to discuss in terms of design then. Maybe that's not the best discipline to dig into it from. Which is not to say that it's not a really good exhibition. Um, Oh, definitely not. I think it is, yeah. And it's also, it's got some really exciting design elements I think you know Julie Rose Bowers uh piece for it where you can build your own ASMR sort of soundscape uh I think just watching people going down and reacting to it I think you know I personally always love an interactive museum exhibit it's really exciting both in terms of like the topic that they're wrestling with but also in terms of like exhibition design We'd recommend it wholeheartedly. You just need to buy Desenio so that you have your companion piece to explain it all to you.
Every issue we try to have a roundtable where we bring together people um, and have an interesting conversation on a topic. And uh, this issue was something quite close to my heart as a queer person and as an architecture enthusiast. You know, we have mentioned on the crit before how Adam Nathaniel Furman and Joshua Mardell have written a really cool new book. It's called Queer Spaces, an Atlas of LGBTQ plus places and stories. Um, so obviously we're big fans here at the crit. Yeah, an important work. Yeah, and it's um, it's been received like pretty well by the, perhaps not the establishment, but by definitely like readers i believe it's entering its second print run isn't it which is not bad going uh yeah congratulations um to the co-authors and uh writer and academic um Asa D approached us and and they originally pitched us a review but we we thought we could do something really special with it and kind of go beyond that yeah i think so because one of the central elements of the book at least in my understanding of it is representing the plurality of voices that form a part of the Rainbow Coalition, that there's a huge number of different perspectives all united within that. And so it felt maybe something like a review would almost be um, too didactic and individual. And what might be more exciting is to represent that variety a little bit more. One thing Adam has said is the book gets criticised for not nailing its colours to the mask and that to the mask not nailing its color i'm mixing my metaphors not nailing its colors to the mast and giving a really clear definition of this is what a queer space is and adam points out rightly i think well you've misunderstood if that's what you're after the whole point of these queer spaces is they kind of exist between clear definition that they are these purposefully shape-shifting uh spaces and you you're just If you're looking for, like, clarity and precision, you've missed the point as to what queerness is. And I'm really proud of what we came up with. I mean, India, you worked on this a lot and did a lot of the heavy lifting. But it really did snowball into, um, I think, a very impressive panel of architects, designers, activists, academics uh, from all around the world, all very different perspectives, all different parts of the Rainbow Coalition. And that felt good and important. It was really nice to have a panel where LGBTQ plus people were involved at every level of it, putting this together, try to represent even just a little bit of that variety. And I mean, look, there's no denying it. In This roundtable is coming out in a context in which trans people, for instance, are coming under huge attack, constant attack just for existing. So I hope that this discussion is something positive and something that we can be proud of and that I think readers will see the value of. Yeah, and to like view coverage of these issues as like a year-round thing and not just something that's like tied to the commercialisation of pride. Yeah, it was a really affirming experience for me to kind of listen in and transcribe and it was a big panel. Um, Usually that would be quite tricky to chair, but it was really interesting to see uh, how all these people from like wildly different backgrounds and um, identities could um, kind of come together and hold space for each other. And um, everyone was just so good at listening to each other and um, kind of building on each other's ideas, referencing each other. And, you know, we had this conversation that was like so wide ranging, but kind of covered everything from the sort of like racist nationalists origins of cartography to people's individual coming out stories and it managed to be really radical as well you know we set off with this question of um, how you can kind of disobey spatial programs how you can practice disobedience with architecture but very quickly establish that actually queerness is often an outright refusal to acknowledge those rules at all There's a lot to be sad and frustrated about in the world today as a queer person, but I think this roundtable is really hopeful and, yeah, I hope that our readers will find that too. So a bit of a change of pace from that, but one of the short stories in the issue and one which I worked on is a reflection on phone one, one in brackets. This is the new smartphone from Nothing, uh, which is a London-based tech company launched in 2020 by Carl Pei and also Teenage Engineering, a Stockholm-based design studio, really great stuff in music tech. And in terms of the phone on a performance level, 
it's not so special. It's a fairly standard Android phone, you know, like good, just no, no sort of bells and whistles there, really. Um, but the hardware is what's interesting, the sort of physical design of it. Uh, phone one has been really carefully designed. Um, nothing are going quite all out on that. The, the whole idea of this is that it is a phone that people will feel is special and will make them feel excited about smartphones again. And the basic way they're doing that is the phone is transparent. So you can look inside and see all of its gubbins, all of its phone tech. Yeah, it does look really cool. It like lights up as well when you use it. It looks like something from Tron. Um, and nothing, if you remember, are the company that did ear open brackets one close brackets. So they, and they were transparent earphones. We covered those about a year ago, I believe. You had some, Ollie, until they met a sticky end. I had some. I washed them. They died. I'm quite sad about it. I liked them. They were good headphones, and mm. I I ruined it for myself. <laughs> Anyway, getting off track, but transparency is the calling card of nothing. But it's not, they're not all uh, fur coat, no knickers. It's not this like one trick. Oh, wow, this is your phone, but it's see-through. Transparent coat, no knickers. (laughs) Yes. Oh, which is, (laughs) um, but they are kind of using this almost as a metaphor for this issue with tech that has this obsession with kind of black box design which is where you can only see this shiny exterior you have no idea what's going on behind the hood i mean you know their major competitor i guess would be apple and apple is deliberately designed so that it's really really hard to like take apart an apple and see how it works um and that also speaks to this kind of what we were talking about earlier in the episode about supply chains and not really knowing where things come from um and a lot of technology uses a lot of kind of rare earth metals a lot of metal a lot of plastic um and we're kind of encouraged to see them as just like oh these wonderful interfaces that just extend and open our lives but actually like there's some very material consequences of that which is something that i understand nothing are also kind of addressing a little bit yeah, they have a little bit. So, I mean, there, there's some good things about Phone One, I should say. It's got a lot of recycled materials in it. Uh, some of the plastic components are bio-based. So, good in that respect. However, one of the things I want to grapple with in the piece is with Phone One and nothing in general, there's um, the kind of performativity of transparency is a really big part of it. But nothing pull this kind of sleight of hand. So they want to talk about transparency, but they mean transparency in two different ways. So there's the physical transparency, which they obviously achieve. You can look through this phone. I mean, I don't know how much you actually learn about how a phone works, but it looks very pretty. It's nice. And the other transparency, they want that to sort of evoke transparency as a company. Now, those two things are really separate. Just because you make a transparent uh, phone does not mean things about the way you work, things about labour conditions, things about supply chains are transparent. But nothing sort of wants to work in that area. So it's very keen to position itself as being somehow different and more real than its competitors. So even down to just calling it phone one, this sort of trying to, we're stripping away the nonsense and all the... uh, BS behind this stuff. This is this is getting back to su- something more authentic. And they did a keynote for uh, Phone One. And I mean, if you say keynote, you immediately think of Apple, right? You think of Steve Jobs in his Miyake turtleneck on stage, it all being very slick and whiz bang. And Nothings was trying so hard not to be that despite being quite similar in a way, because it's just the leader of the company talking about a new phone. But it opens up with Carl Pei in this sort of greasy spoon cafe, and then he moves to a slightly tatty theatre. And I think it's about trying to create that difference to Apple. And it's quite nice, but at the same time, it's a little bit, oh, hi, call me Carl type thing. Here I am in my favourite cafe. And that's one of the things the piece deals with a little bit, this notion of different kinds of transparency and how do they interrelate with one another. Yeah, it's kind of like 
if you have a horror film, like, are the people in the horror film aware of the horror tropes and the monsters, <laughs> or are they not? It's, you know, if you're making a phone, uh, are you going to mention that Apple is there? <laughs> because you kind of, you know, you either have to pretend that you've, you know, Apple never heard of her, or you have to try and be like, oh, we're doing Apple, but this is our, like, main point of departure, which, like, you know, the bioplastics is one way that they're doing it. They're also kind of stepping outside of the um, the kind of aesthetic look it's it's almost kind of a bit like the early apple aesthetic where they had those see-through colored cases um which apple we've you know talked about before with like johnny ive leaving they've really like moved to a different aesthetic but also one thing that phone brackets one is addressing as well is kind of planned obsolescence which is something that apple has definitely become a byword for although they are by no means the only offender but it's this this idea that uh, if you want the latest technology, you are going to have to go out and buy a new one every year that's often just going to be a variation of a theme but have like a slightly snazzier camera or more memory or like a different shape. And then obviously you're going to have to go and buy like a new case for it and then you're going to have to buy new headphones for it and then you're going to buy like a new charging thing for it, which then just kind of snowballs into that like overconsumption. Absolutely. And and phone one is not an answer to that. It's not radical in that sense. Um, it looks beautiful. I think it, it looks really, really stunning. It seems like a really nice phone. And the issues we're raising are industry wide. They're not connected purely to nothing. But yeah, I mean, if you were really going to shake up that field, what you'd do is you'd look at something that moves away from planned obsolescence. You'd work with designs that could be updated uh, through software for many, many years so people keep hold of these things for longer so the carbon costs are not as severe. Um, But that's just the challenge of working in this world. Uh, Phone One, super carefully designed, and they are promising software updates. I should say that they say they want people to hold on to this for a while. But in general, this is a field whose economics just don't want that. It's a field where economics crash with what would be good design, really. And it's super hard to kind of embody design values other to that than within the smartphone world. So I like Phone 1 a lot. I think it's really, really nice. Is it something that is radically changing what smartphones are? No, no. It, 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 it's a facelift on a problematic typology. But it's problematic and has been for years and we all know why. Your phone is a problematic fave. So the final story from me that I want to highlight is a piece by the architect Rupal Rathor, uh, which explores Auroville. Uh, Auroville is an experimental township in Tamil Nadu, southern India. Now, I have to say, I wasn't familiar at all with Auroville before commissioning this piece. Uh, So for anyone in a similar boat to me, Auroville is a town of currently around 3,300 residents uh, that was established in the 1960s by a spiritual leader called The Mother, who was born uh, Mira Alfasa in France. And Auroville and The Mother's philosophy, I suppose, was devoted to divine consciousness for all. People travel from all around the world to Auroville, which was master planned by the French architect Roger Angers, whose design is highly symbolic, as you might imagine it would be, um, and it attempts to translate the mother's ideas into physical form. So it's a mandala-like city with four demarcated zones for residential, industrial, cultural and international, and that's all arranged around a central nucleus, which is Matramandir, a huge golden meditation pavilion. Yeah, and the central tension in this piece is that Auroville has a kind of complex, a complex legacy and a complex contemporary moment where it's reached this crossroads. Um, the uh, the plan that Angers drew up, which is called the Galaxy Plan, was for a city of 50,000 people. And currently there are only 3,300 residents who are living there. But for some of those residents, the Galaxy Plan is, is really important. It's really essential. It is the mother's um, kind of uh, spiritual ideas and mission come to life and um, accomplishing it 
is a very uh, central part of their ideology. But then other groups who've also been there since the beginning uh, are saying, you know, we don't have enough people to be building this and we plant it, you know, this land that they got was quite dry and barren and they planted trees and nothing and they grew these beautiful forests in order to realise the galaxy plan as it was originally written would uh, mean building this super wide, I think it's almost like 70 metre wide road called the Crown Road that would kind of encircle these zones. Um, but you would have to demolish uh, lots of trees, lots of structures to get there. But uh, it's all kind of come to a head because, you know, some demolition has actually happened. And uh, it's a really interesting perspective as well because Rupal is there as a designer who's working on some gardens. And it's like the first time that they've had a kind of non Auravillian designer coming in to do it. So I think she has this like really interesting perspective on the galaxy versus anti galaxy situation. Yeah, so Rupa went there as um, a designer for four of the 12 main gardens in the Peace Area, which is the zone that surrounds Matramandir. Now, these gardens are immensely important. After Matramandir, they're kind of the spiritual heart of this project. And as you say, it's a major thing that it's the first time an external design team has been brought in to work on that master plan. And so Rupa has a really interesting insight into some of these complexities and I think has a very interesting perspective on the social, political and spiritual issues that are shaping a lot of this debate. Because everyone agrees, galaxy, anti-galaxy, they want to execute the mother's plan It's just they have different perspectives on what that means. So for some people, that means you make the master plan literally as Angers drew it. And anything other than that is a failure. For other people, they go, well, you kind of have to adapt it more to the ecology. And that's the way you make galaxy come into its existence. And then you have every position in between those two. And a lot of this gets even more complicated. It's very tied up in both national and local politics. It's not all sort of spirituality. Some of it is much more mundane. It's tied in with ideas of nationalism. It's tied in with land rights and things like that. And Rupal covers all of that. It's a really fascinating piece. And I would recommend people pick it up and and learn a lot more about that place. So... Another one of the short story uh, projects, um, this one was one of mine again. I'm really excited we got to feature it. Um, It's something that's really stuck with me since I first uh, came across it at Southern Sweden Design Days earlier this year. Um, It's from Andrew Foreman, who are a collective of four designers who are based in Malmö in Sweden. Um, And they originally came together because they share a workspace and between them they cover a huge range of disciplines. Um, This project is called E-Metabolism. And it's a direct response to a local issue, but something that I think is a global issue as well, because it's happening in lots of cities around the world right now, is this e-waste that's getting dumped um, kind of on the streets or in waterways if a city has them. Particularly these e-scooters, which, I mean, you see them everywhere. They're great fun. I had to go on one in Berlin. It was lovely. Then I tried to go down a road you're not allowed to go on and an armed guard shooed us away. (laughs) You're brave. I am quite scared of them because I have heard all sorts of horror stories about crashes on them. Um, So uh, a little, um, one of those little like trick micro scooters is, is about as fast as I would like to go. The problem has got so big that volunteer diving teams have been going down there and getting these vehicles out of the water. And Andrew Foreman kind of got hold of some of these and uh, wanted to use them as kind of a repository of materials. Um, And they found out that they're really hard to take apart, but you can take them apart. And they made all sorts of kind of weird, wonderful, some useful, some ornamental objects. Um, We shot one of the lamps for um, this issue. But there are loads of things in this collection, you know, everything from like bookends, which are made out of bits of metal, um, an aquaponics system for growing plants at home, even like earrings made from the decommissioned electric circuitry. It's really cool. Yeah, it's an interesting one. When you first told me about what they were doing, it reminded me 
I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, a couple of bike rental startups were trying to launch in Manchester and it just failed because everyone just kept lobbing the bikes in the canal. <laughs> I think they lost record numbers of bikes. People just destroyed them. Uh, I mean, it was really, really funny. It was very funny, but also, I suppose, an awful thing because these scooters, these bikes, they're great. There's so many good advantages to them. Some downsides too, but let's skip that. But there's nothing to stop them being trashed or ending up in, if someone throws them in water, then what happens? They're suddenly leaking battery acid, whatever else into this. And there's not much you can do. And one statistic from your piece that I thought was interesting is that for one of these e-scooters to break even for cost, it has to be operational for two years. But even if they're not lobbed in a canal, apparently they're only lasting for like nine months. So there's madness. There is madness within these e-scooters. Yeah. And like legislation has not kept up with it. And um, the reason that, you know, that's not a profitable business model, but this is the startup model. It's venture capitalist backing. They just pump money in. The idea is that you become the like number one supplier of this thing that everyone wants. And then you can up the prices and kind of corner a market. But because of that model, there's just like scooters everywhere. And um you know, these companies have never tried to deliver an urban transport solution. Like, it takes huge infrastructure. If you think about, like, the Santander bikes in um, London, that requires, like, a fleet of lorries going around, re-putting them back in the right docks and, like, servicing them to keep them roadworthy. There's so much infrastructure that needs to happen. Or, you know, you just invent in... You just invest in public transport, a wild concept. Um, But instead, these private companies are being allowed to kind of dump all of these like things. And um, it's the local councils or it's volunteers or like these designers who are left to try and like pick up the literal pieces of this e-waste problem. And we're seeing the same problems we see in all tech, as we spoke about before. Repairability, planned obsolescence. One of the things that was interesting from what wrote about in your piece is once the e-scooters were recovered Andrew Foreman found they were really hard to take apart like I think they had to take an angle grinder to them in the end right these things Mm -hmm. do not come apart easily they're very hard to recycle you've got an aluminium frame you've got rare earth minerals in the batteries these are obviously super valuable material resources but there's no great plan as to what you do with them at the end of their lifespan And I mean, this is a real kind of cottage industry type thing. It's super small scale what Andrew Foreman are doing. But I think the thing I really like about the pieces is they've left the branding very present. And you don't see that kind of branding on lamps or furniture often, which is a shame because it's a really interesting aesthetic. But they're quite confrontational pieces. You know, they don't look like scooters, but it's pretty clear where these things have come from once you start to notice that. And that's good. That's good to highlight those issues and flag them up because you just, you're going to need policy level changes to deal with this or else we're just going to end up with more and more junk ending up on our streets and in our canals. And that is just some of the stories that we have got in this uh, edition. I should also say that we um, have got Design Drafts coming out, which is a very exciting programme with new writers um, who won a competition to um, write and produce a story that's being published as a separate um, but complementary publication. Yeah, we're incredibly proud of Design Drafts. This is an initiative launched in collaboration with Hetnew Institute in Rotterdam. And it's an opportunity to try out new kinds of design writing and to provide a little bit of a pathway into the industry for people who would like to maybe work with writing as part of their design practice, who would like to be critics or curators. And the six writers we worked with on this, I have to say, were fantastic. It was such a pleasure and so exciting to work with them, to see their ideas. Um, They took some really experimental approaches to design writing too, which has been refreshing and energizing for all of us for all of us uh older writers out there who are a bit jaded 
But sort of jokes aside, we're very, very proud of that publication and can't wait for people to have a look at it. Um, So that's another highlight for people. Yeah, it's super exciting. Subscribe. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I have been your host, India Block, with our editor-in-chief, Ollie Stratford. If you want to get in touch, if you want to weigh in on any of the topics, uh, you know, copying, ASMR, you can email us uh, at thecrit at designojournal.com. Stay tuned. We will be back in a month's time with a new edition of The Crit. And if you'd like to hear more of Desenio in the interim, visit our website, desenojournal.com, where we will be sharing details of our events programming for the London Design Festival. So do check that out. We're doing a lot of really interesting panel talks and public events that we hope to see some of you at. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crit, which was co-hosted by me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block. It was produced and edited by Evie Hall. All music for The Crit has been created by Yori Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo was designed by Leonard Rothmeiser.